Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Good morning and welcome again to the Scottish Council on Global Affairs and our occasional podcast series. Today I'm joined by one of our colleagues within the universities, Professor Christian Tans. And Christian is the Chair in International Law at the University of Glasgow and also the Director of the Glasgow Centre for International Law and Security and also sits on the management team of the Council itself. And today we're going to talk about an anniversary, actually. Um, it is this week, the uh, 75th anniversary of the Genocide Convention um, of the United Nations. And we thought this was a, a timely subject to come to, given everything that's been going on recently, but also just to, to go back and look at the, the span of our understanding of these issues since it was uh, first termed. So good morning, Christian. Good morning, John. It's great to be on this podcast. And uh, while the occasion celebrating a genocide convention anniversary is not necessarily a happy one, I think it's a relevant one. And I'm very happy to be joining this podcast. Great. Thank you. And and if I'm right, you've you also have been have a publication on this very subject right now as well. Yes, I mean it's sort of it's it's uh, it's published to coincide with the, the sort of the seventy fifth anniversary of the signing and adoption of the convention in I mean, next week, really on the 9th of December. It's a book that is a relatively loyally book that tries to make sense in a technical and doctrinal way of the meaning of the terms of the convention and looks at them article by article. Uh, so it's a very, very grounded, very technical, you might say, take on the issues, but a sort of an in-depth in engagement with the terms of the convention that was agreed 75 years ago. Great. Okay, well, we'll make sure we put a link to that in the in the podcast description as well. So I suppose the best place to start is at the beginning, take us back to you know where this convention came from and what it was a response to, although I think we can we can probably all guess what that is. Yeah, I mean, so the, the beginning really is 75 years ago, 1948, late 1948, to be precise, the 9th of December, and to, to give a location also, the Palais Chaillot in Paris. Uh, that was the setting for, at the time, the General Assembly meeting of the United Nations. This was before the United Nations had its purpose-built premises in New York. So the General Assembly meetings took place in different places, in London at times, in Paris. And the General Assembly, um, by a resolution, uh, agreed to the text of this genocide convention. Um, the genocide convention that would then need to be ratified by states to become binding. But 1948, 9th of December is the uh, the date of the adoption. And this uh, adoption in late 1948 marked the end of a probably two-year relatively speedy process in which the terms of this convention had been agreed. 20, uh, just under 20 articles, 19 to be precise, um, in which core obligations of states relating to genocide were formulated. Um, and you asked about what is this a response to? Well, it is probably obvious that uh, the Genocide Convention of 1948 was a response to the Holocaust uh, of the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and it was, uh, it was clearly adopted in the shadow of the Holocaust. And the timing is, is really sort of almost dramatic. I mean, by by the time the convention was adopted, late 1948, um, Auschwitz had been liberated for less than four years, uh, January mm -hmm. 1945. So it's, uh, in that sense, a very speedy response. 
uh, and, and that is the obvious backdrop against which the genocide convention has to be seen. And, and the term genocide itself was a relatively new one at the time. I mean, I, I know from recent work by Philip Sands and others that there was this, um, not tension, but this discussion about the difference between uh, crimes against humanity and genocide itself. So it was a, even in the, the late 1940s, it was a very new term. Yes, I mean, that's, uh, I think it, it's brought out wonderfully clearly in, in Philippe Sand's work, uh, uh, which which you refer to. So the term genocide um, was only really coined in the in the 1940s. And the, the person who, dare you say, popularized it, but who coined it as Raphael Lemkin uh, in, in a book on Axis rule in occupied Europe, uh, written in 1943, published in 1944. So that's where the term genocide uh, was was really sort of used prominently for the first time, created for that purpose, um, to describe what was perceived as a dramatic crime, uh, defined by the attempt to wipe out, to exterminate groups, um, groups uh, of populations. So in 1944, this was a new term. Even in the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunals of 1945-1946, which in many ways are milestones, uh, genocide, the crimes committed against the Jewish population of Europe were, um, well, they, they weren't marginal, of course, they were brought out, but the charges were brought for aggressive warfare, for war crimes. The Holocaust, the genocide, which in our memory now is so defining for the World War II crimes committed by German and Axis forces, was not the key aspect of the Nuremberg trials partly because the term at the point was so new and the focus was on aggressive war between states. And that's what the Nuremberg war crimes trials focused on. So in that sense, you could say that the Genocide Convention remedied that defect of the immediate aftermath of the World War II when justice was brought to bear on war criminals, but for crimes relating to war rather than for crimes concerning the extermination of population groups. Right, right. And, and effectively, it established... Genocide is, I think you described it as the crime of crimes. It is, it, it, its definition is is widely accepted now, but it, it basically created a crime that sat almost on top of every other convention of war or or um, human rights as was understood at that point. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, I mean, of course, it's always, I mean, it's a it's a curious sort of uh, top ten list on oh, the crimes of crimes. This is not the charts, mm. but of course, it is a, an evocative term, and it was coined. Uh, it was used frequently by international criminal tribunals when they came to use, uh, um, when they came to prosecute perpetrators of crimes, including genocide, uh, more regularly from the 1990s onwards. And then I think genocide was rightly described as the crime of crimes. It's defined in a in a particular way in the Genocide Convention, and this definition, as you say, has stood the test of time. The, um, the criminal lawyers are used to be dividing crimes into the act that is committed and the subjective element. And in terms of the act, genocide is not different from other crimes. It's the killing, for example, of members of the group or the causing of serious bodily harm. So it is like murder or manslaughter or uh, assault. But what defines genocide and what justifies this label of the crime of crimes is that this act has to be committed with a special intent. And the Genocide Convention takes great care to bring that out. And maybe I can just sort of quote the phrase. The key element is that this act has to be committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part 
a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And every word there is contentious in that definition. But even when we look beyond those contentions, which have kept criminal tribunals often busy, the key point is clear that there is an act, like an assault, like a murder, which is committed with a particular mindset. And this is this extermination of population groups uh, in whole or in part. And that sets genocide apart from other crimes. And that gives it, uh, gives it this special stigma, um, which probably justifies this label of crime of crimes. And as well as imposing the obligation, the obvious obligation on states that they shouldn't commit genocide, um, as I understand it, it also went a little bit further than that, that they must work to prevent it. And I suppose where, where we've moved in the 75 years since, seek to punish those who perpetrate it as well. Yeah, and I think this is really, um, I mean, the, the convention was drafted, as I was saying, relatively speedily. And of course, it's the product of its time. So I think at the time, um, the accent, if you look at the text of the convention, was or the focus was not so much on that genocide couldn't be, should be committed, that was almost taken as read. So it was to establish obligations on states to work against genocides. And there are those two prongs that you mentioned, and it's they are both in the title of the convention. The title is the Convention on the Prevention and the Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And uh, so they, they're, they're, those are the two duties alongside the duty not to commit genocide, which is implied. The two duties are the duty to prevent it as far as possible. And there's always, as with duties to prevention, a limitation, a common sense limitation. You cannot be obliged to do more than can plausibly be expected, but a duty to prevent and a duty to punish perpetrators. And those are the two prongs of the convention regime, which... Um, were clearly on the mind of, of drafters in 1948 and which remain relevant until today. Perhaps just one more point um, to make, also picking up on the title, it's uh, the convention takes great care to pronounce or to, to make clear that genocide is a crime under international law. And that sounds perhaps trite today, but at the time that was relevant because that was the idea that it didn't depend on being codified as a crime under national law, under Scottish law, under English law, under German law, under whatever law of whichever country, it was a crime directly under international law, therefore imposing direct obligations uh, on individuals, irrespective of whether their state had criminalized genocide. So those three elements from the title do matter. I mean, the idea that genocide is a crime under international law and that the convention focuses on its prevention and the punishment of its perpetrators. And, and that obligation of pursuing perpetrators, that sort of takes us forward into the movement of, towards international criminal justice since. So not just the, the recognition of the act, but the, the prosecution um, and the, the pursuit of perpetrators is where modern cr criminal tribunals that we're familiar with have, have moved towards. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the convention is uh, is at a curious intersection there. Sort of it established this as a crime in 1948. Um, at the time, no international criminal tribunals uh, were in existence. The ones in or the ones in Nuremberg and Tokyo were winding up their work, but then there was no follow-up, contrary to what people perhaps or optimists in the late 1940s had expected. There was a, a big hiatus to the movement of international criminal justice, which only came to an end in the 1990s. So the convention 
if you look at the punishment that you mentioned, has these two ideas, that there should be punishment before national tribunals or before what the convention refers to in its Article 6, an international penal tribunal that would have jurisdiction over perpetrators. And those two ways of prosecuting genocidaires are envisaged. Now, um, the second element of that, the idea that uh, there would be prosecution of genocide before international criminal tribunals was only really, it's not realized by the convention. It was only realized later in the 1990s when the international community began to set up crimes, uh, uh, international criminal tribunals, first in relation to uh, the war in Yugoslavia, then in relation to uh, Rwanda, uh, and later on in a more general sense under the Rome Statute. And all these three criminal tribunals were set up, if you want, separately from the Genocide Convention, but they exercise the international criminal jurisdiction that the Genocide Convention in 1948 envisaged. And they use the definition, the same definition that the Genocide Convention uses for defining the crime. And all those three tribunals have jurisdiction over perpetrators of genocide. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at the heart of that new, new international procedure as such, where are we now? A lot of states have ratified the, the convention, but still there's a lot that haven't. Take us through some of them and what the reasoning behind that is, though I guess we can guess what some of the reasoning of some member states might be. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And there's also that's also an, an important reminder that uh, we mustn't sort of project, uh, we mustn't buy in all too easily into the, the jargon that the condemnation of genocide is universal. I think there's a, a massive movement to outlaw genocide. Um, there's few people argue that there should not be a crime. Um, but of course, the in some areas of the world, this is felt more strongly than elsewhere. So the convention nowadays, if you're looking at it as a treaty, treaties need to be signed up under international law, like contracts would under under domestic legal systems. So 153 states have ratified this or have accepted this convention. So four fifths, three quarters uh, of 80 percent, roughly of the of the states of the world, uh, and that's. That's a relevant. Um, uh, that's a relevant um, majority, a significant majority. Uh, very few treaties in the world have massively more uh, states as members. Um, and in Europe, in North America, in Latin America, it is pretty universal. Truly, the the participation in the regime. It's a bit different if we're looking at other areas. So in Africa, there's a number of states, um, including Somalia. Uh, the Central African Republic, which have not become party to the convention. Perhaps more surprisingly, Japan has never acceded or, or, or ratified the convention. Indonesia hasn't either. So it's not a complete picture. Not every state in the world has signed up to it. But I think the clear majority have. And perhaps, especially for the continent of Africa, we probably have to recognize that the movement um, to outlaw genocide through the form of this treaty hasn't been as powerful on the African continent historically as it has been in Europe, and perhaps for a reason. Just one final addition to that, if a state hasn't signed up or ratified or acceded to this convention, it doesn't mean that the rules formulated in it do not apply to it. Uh, this is perhaps a point more for the international lawyers uh, that are listening in. There is, an in addition to the law of treaties or the law formulated in treaties, there's customary international law, which binds all states. And there's no disagreement, I think, among, among tribunals, among courts, among states, that the core obligations that we were discussing, and in particular the duty not to commit genocide, apply as customary international law, 
So even the states that are not party to this treaty are bound not to commit genocide. But they haven't signed up to the treaty with its particular procedures. Uh, and this is a, a salutary reminder that the movement towards making the convention universal has to continue. And this is something that we'll hear a lot in the coming week uh, on the occasion of the 75th commemoration or the 75th anniversary of the adoption of the convention. There'll be a renewed push to get more states to ratify to ratify the treaty. And just on that point, do we have a sense, I mean, is those countries that haven't signed, there'll be some that, that will have very particular political reasons for not doing so, but do others have an objection on a point of international law? Do they see it as an uh, overextension of international law, or is it more the the individual concerns of the domestic politics of the countries of, that are involved? I think for the most, uh, I mean, there may be even a further reason, and that is inertia. Uh, and that yeah. is, of course, something that we don't necessarily relate with genocide because it seems such a dramatic movement and such a dramatic cause. But of course, states, uh, not at, this may not be at the forefront of every state's or every government's mind. Uh, I think it's very clear that, uh, take, a, take my home country, Germany, when Germany uh, rejoined the family of nations after World War II, it was very clear that... Uh, becoming party to the Genocide Convention, despite some concerns it might have had or exposure it might have brought to Germany, it was clear that this was a crucial signal. And so Germany very quickly ratified the convention, in, which has become binding on Germany since 1954. That similar argument doesn't necessarily apply elsewhere. So, so many states that have not joined may have simply decided that the signal isn't as powerful and as required as it was, for example, for Germany in the 1950s. So I wouldn't read too much opposition into that, which in some instances there may have been, but it is perhaps also that it's it's not considered necessary because the state will not consider itself uh, close to committing genocide. It will find that the rules of customary international law apply nonetheless. So the added value of ratifying the convention from a government's perspective may not be there. But of course, that is challenged. And there's a sort of concerted movement in the UN human rights community and in the UN more generally to get states to come on board. Uh, so I think if I'm if I'm being uh, perhaps a bit uh, simplistic, I would say of the around 40 states of the world that have not become party to this movement, I don't think there's more than a handful that do so on principled grounds, that stay outside on principled grounds. For most of them, it is... Um, it's perhaps a question of not fully buying into the crucial nature of, of becoming a party. I suppose that leads us to the to the big question of efficacy. You know, what what impact does the convention have? I mean, clearly it doesn't or it can't prevent genocide. And we've seen plenty of examples in the present day, but going back of the last 20 or 30 years, whether the Great Lakes in Africa or the former Yugoslavia, there's been plenty of examples where the term has been used. So this is a slightly subjective question for you, but you know, the efficacy of the convention, how does it how do you think it lands today in terms of its influence on, on countries? Yeah, I mean I think it's a it's a it's a central question which which all um everybody who's involved with United Nations treaty making needs to confront and in particular this this convention. So I think, I mean, yes, I think I would say perhaps two points I would make. One is that it's very clear that to the extent that the Genocide Convention encapsulates in legal term this promise of never again or this pledge of never again to genocide, it has not worked. Absolutely. Um, 
There have been genocides since 1948, including committed by states that were party to the convention. And uh, if we just go through the list, I mean, the, the murders against the Tutsi in Rwanda in the 19, mid-1990s were clearly uh, considered genocide by international criminal tribunals and by other observers. For the war in Yugoslavia, it is the picture is more uh, nuanced, but it's been very clearly uh, found that the, the massacres in Srebrenica, um, not all massacres against Bosnian Muslims, but the massacres in Srebrenica in 1995 amounted to genocide. More recently, there's uh, talk about the massacres against the Jezidi population of northern Iraq. And again, some courts have considered these to be genocidal in nature. And there's a big debate about atrocities committed against the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. And there's a court, a, a court case pending before the International Court of Justice, in which exactly this is uh, the question, whether they amount to genocide. It's very clear that they are atrocities, perhaps crimes against humanity, but whether they also qualify as genocide is, is an open question. I think some UN experts have said yes, but the International Court of Justice is still discussing this. So to, on this first point, I think the never again pledge has not been realized. There's a second point to make, of course, that never again is always a pledge. And the idea is that you want to come as close as possible, even with genocide, mm -hmm. the efficacy uh, uh, efficacy of a, of a convention uh, is, is never absolute. So the key question is, I think the real question is, has the convention helped limit the amount of genocidal risks and has it helped, um, has it helped coordinate responses against it? And it seems to me on that, uh, on that, from that perspective, um, the convention is doing useful work. It is clearly the point of reference. It helps shore up, uh, support for the proposition that genocide is horrible, needs to be stigmatized and needs to be met with a response. Um, and it provides tools for responding against it. I mentioned briefly now this case against Myanmar before the International Court of Justice. Now, international courts are not uh, the most powerful tools in international relations, but these proceedings, which, which help uh, with the fight against genocide, are enabled by the convention because states under the convention except that where there's a, an allegation of genocide, they can, under the regular course of events, be brought before an international court. So I think we see in international proceedings before between states against perpetrators of genocide, we see a response against genocide where it happens and a scrutiny of atrocities of whether they amount to genocide. And these are very clearly responses that are enabled by the convention uh, and which show that it has an effect that even where we have to recognize that the pledge of, of never again has not been realized. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that brings us right up to the, the current day, because the, it, it seems to me the word itself is used with increasing regularity in terms of the discussion of uh, things that are happening elsewhere in the world. And we've got two very obvious examples of that right now in the world, both in, in Ukraine and in the Middle East. So is there a, I mean, it's, it's a tricky area to get into because it's, you see in, in both those cases, both sides, if there are sides as such, using the term. So you've got to the probably unexpected, potentially unexpected situation where both sides in a conflict might be using the same term against each other. Yeah, um, and I think that's a that's a that's a 
key point. And I think this is something that probably in 1948 people didn't have on their minds. The idea that genocide would be used, perhaps overused, as a as an allegation to stigmatize conduct from the other side. I think when I said that the convention was negotiated against the backdrop of the Holocaust, this seemed to be a singular crime at the time. And the idea that, that genocide would be just sort of regularly used as an accusation if you want to belittle uh, or if you want to criticize conduct, that was probably not on anybody's mind. The possibility of abusively labeling another party, another side, an opponent, opponent as, as guilty of genocide. Now, it's a fine line. And I think you mentioned two areas, uh, two, two fields, two conflicts where this is currently happening. I think I'll, I'll probably make three points. Um, so one is, I mean, the, the Russia-Ukraine case, that's a very clear example. And I think this is also something where perhaps we can expect some guidance. So Russia, in the early days of the, uh, of the aggression against Ukraine, seemed to justify its conduct as a response against genocide committed against uh, a Russian minority in eastern Ukraine. Now, wherever we stand on the position of whether the Russian minority in eastern Ukraine or Russian-speaking minority in eastern Ukraine was, was discriminated against, it seems very clear in the judgment of most, of all international observers, that this wasn't genocidal violence, nowhere near. Um, so this was clearly an abusive allegation, but you see that uh, you see the risk that a convention runs if it formulates duties of prevention. So Russia justified its conduct, its use of force, as a necessary operation to prevent genocide against its minority. It's in inverted commas, if you want. So Ukraine called this out as an abusive uh, invocation of the convention and brought a case against Russia before the International Court for the abusive use of genocide allegations, a smearing campaign, if you want. Now that takes us into this very tricky territory that you mentioned, but perhaps it will we will get from this judgment, and I think we're expecting from this judgment some guidance on what really is an abusive allegation of genocide that you must not engage in, and you, you certainly cannot use as a license to justify your own aggressive military conduct. So that's one point, but I think there's of course a second point, and that's um, even beyond, I mean, very few states use genocide allegations abusively and then start massive aggressions against neighboring states. Mostly, it's become a tool in the diplomatic uh, campaign against an opponent. And there, it seems to me, it is crucial that um, on the 75th anniversary, we are clear that genocide is not just another crime. Um, and it is the crime of crimes. And I think as much as we have to accept that it cannot be just the Holocaust that was a genocide. Genocides have happened since, and each genocide, unfortunately, has its own peculiar uh, characteristics. I think we must stick to the initial idea of formulating restrictively a particularly grave crime. So genocide, genocide allegations must never be made lightly. And I hope that in the, in the commemoration of the 75th anniversary uh, uh, convention, people not just proclaim or not just rally around the cause of never again, but also make sure that the cause remains one that is universal. And for that, genocide needs to be construed narrowly. I make much more briefly uh, a third point, uh, and that uh, goes to this um, goes to the relationship between genocide and and other crimes. I think this is almost a risk of the, you might say, of the success of the Genocide Convention. I think the, the Genocide Convention has successfully stigmatized the conduct as particularly egregious. 
We have no shortage of such labels in international relations. We speak of crimes against humanity, which is a pretty grave use of terminology. We speak of war crimes, uh, and then there's genocide. It's not always easy to draw the line between them, but I think the jurisprudence of international criminal tribunals helps us, and I think we should stick by that guidance. If we water down or if we blur the lines between genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, uh, where I think we're not respecting the idea that animated this convention uh, negotiated and adopted 75 years ago. So and it really remains important to, to, to recognize that separation that Lemkin sought to make, that there was a very particular evil at, at play here that was more than all the other you know, appalling crimes that come out of conflict that 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 made it that set it slightly apart, and that that, if you like, that principle still runs today. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I would say uh, we need to discuss whether that principle remains uh, plausible. And if you just look at the text of the convention again, for example, the, the convention is a child of its time. It speaks of uh, it speaks of this idea of exterminating in whole or in part a population, and then it defines certain groups, um, ethnic, racial, uh, religious, etc. But for example, political groups are not protected. Gender groups are not protected. So if, an, if a convention was negotiated today, we would probably change the type of the groups that are protected. So I think, and this needs to be uh, discussed. I mean, is, is uh, for example, if people who seek to exterminate a group that is ethnically defined, is that really worse than people who did seek to exterminate a group that is defined by its political convictions? So these discussions need to be had. But I think uh, a second point is also relevant, that the Genocide Convention clearly is premised on those distinctions. And as long as 153 states and many more rally around this cause, I think these distinctions uh, should guide our conduct. And I think the point that you raised, is there really this particular evil, I think almost as a lawyer, I would say the convention is premised on the idea that this is a particularly stigmatized crime that deserves that stigmatization. So unless there's a consensus to change it, to adopt it or to move away towards a different uh, approach, I think we should we should uh, we should uh, we should continue to proceed on those lines. And I think I mean, one thing I would say is, of course, that this is not fanciful. I mean, the idea is, I mean, the idea that uh, the extermination of particular population groups is a particular evil needs to be discussed, needs to be challenged and uh, and robustly discussed. But of course, it's not implausible. I think the Genocide Convention starts uh, with this realization that at all periods of history, genocide has inflicted great losses on humanity. So while it was negotiated against the backdrop of the Holocaust, of course, it reflects an eternal truth that um, attempts to eradicate particular groups have had a long history, have often been have often been successful and more often been tried. And I think so the idea that this is a particular crime is not something that people just dreamed up in 1948, but it is eminently plausible. So it needs to be discussed and challenged, but I think it will survive that challenge. And so I think we're we're, we're singling it out as a particular stigmatized crime for a reason. That's a really important point. I think to remember at this at this anniversary, I'm I'm conscious of time. I, I'll let you get back to your to your work. But I had one question. We we have Scottish in our title at the Scottish Council on Global Affairs, and Scotland is slightly different to some uh, jurisdictions in, especially subnational ones, if you can use that term, in that it has its own code of law, 
And is there any respect? I mean, we see in the Scottish Parliament moves to adopt the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, for instance. Is is there anything that sub-state actors or nations within states that they can, is there a role that they can play in this, or is this really the 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 area or the place of those member state seats around the table in the United Nations and elsewhere? So there's definitely room for subnational uh, entities um, in in the framework of the convention, and there are I think two two points I would make. I mean, one is and one is specific to, to Scotland; the other the other less so. Um, the more general point I would make, which is not specific to Scotland, is that the Genocide Convention needs to be implemented domestically. And it's a general principle of, of international law that uh, a state is responsible for the conduct of all its subnational, regional, local authorities. So in that sense, the Genocide Convention, to the extent that binds the UK, must be, um, must be implemented by all UK civil servants, all UK government, all branches of government, and all devolved governments. So in that sense, this is beyond dispute, but this is also true for other uh, for other international treaties. The second point is more relevant, and that uh, goes to something that is specific to the convention that takes us back to something we were discussing halfway through or in the first half of our, of our podcast interview, and that is the duty to criminalize. As you said at the time, and the sort of punishment is a key prong of the convention's regime. And punishment requires, of course, criminalization. Genocide is a crime under international law, but the convention requires states to criminalize conduct as genocide. And nearly all of them have done. Um, and so in a system like within the UK, where Scotland has its own criminal jurisdiction, that duty to criminalize is to be exercised by the different entities that have jurisdiction over criminal law. So there is within Scotland, within Scottish criminal law, a crime of genocide. That is pretty much the same as the crime of genocide in England, but it is a separate one. And so this is crucially relevant. And I think the same issues that we have seen in Scotland and the, the debate about, uh, let's say, the Scottish Act on the International Criminal Court uh, are at play here. So there's a crime of genocide under the Scottish criminal law. And that shows, I think, to me that very clearly uh, there is a role for Scotland within the fight, the international fight against genocide, even if we focus on this very formal aspect of criminalizing genocide and punishing perpetrators. Very interesting. Thank you. So I think that's that's brought us neatly from the universal down to the uh, the national or the local. So I'll 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 leave it there. I mean, I, it's I think it's a it's a fascinating reflection that something that is almost in the mists of modern history that there, there's few people around who will remember in first hand the circumstances that brought this about, but the fact that it's still a very much an open discussion in terms of both the definition and the application of this convention makes this anniversary re really relevant. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And, and uh, of course, at the time we're struggling at the moment in the international community, there seems to be so much division, there seems to be so much opposition and juxtaposition and antagonism, including in areas where we had felt it had been overcome. So I think the fight against genocide is one of the, I mean, it's not just one of the most significant causes, but also one of the ones where we can hopefully have the best chance of forging a consensus against genocide. This does not, as you were saying uh, during our podcast, mean that genocide will always, we will always be able to prevent it. But I think we need a foundational document that that reflects this cause. And I think this is the Genocide Convention. And in that sense, 
while it was negotiated in a very particular time against the backdrop of a Holocaust, I think it it has stood the test of time and it is now uh, accepted to formulate something that is as close to a universal cause as the international community has. And I think that's something that hopefully will be brought out uh, when states and UN and citizens and think tanks will reflect on the impact of the 75th anniversary. It's a the, the pledge of never again, of course, has to be actualized and realized all the time and has to be renewed. But I think there's a significant measure of uh, support for it on which we can build. That's an excellent point on which to finish. That's very kind, Christine. Thank you for your time and your thoughts. And um, I'll let you get back to your academic day. Thank you, John. A, a privilege and a pleasure to speak to you and very happy to be part of this podcast series. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.